Welcome, everybody, to the third podcast that will be traveling through the book of Genesis. As always, I'm Scott. And I'm Brad. And this is not about us. So once again, uh, as usual, Brad and I do want to thank you so much for being a part of these Bible studies with us. Uh, It really does mean a lot to us that you guys are listening, and uh, I really hope that you feel that you can comment at any time. Send us some information that you have that you feel we've missed or something that's just enlightened you that we haven't covered or that we have covered, but you see it from a different perspective, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. I very much love when people share how God's moved in their life or what insight God has given them. Um, And as always, you know, we're going to share with you too. So yeah, please, if you feel up to it, give us a comment. So Brad, would you do us the honor of opening this in prayer today? Absolutely. Yahweh, Creator, of the earth and the heavens. Once again, we're going to sit back and enjoy a Genesis study. As always, this is very exciting. What new insights are we going to get today? But the only way we'll get the best insights is if you are here with us. So God, I invite you in. I ask that you be a part of this study so we can get all the information straight from the source. God, we honor you, we worship you, we praise you, we love you. Be our honored guest. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, I want to start off uh, by saying today that I am so excited. Uh, the more I get into this, the cooler I feel it gets. Uh, I believe I said uh, a while ago, one of the earlier podcasts, I actually started my own Genesis study uh, about a year and a half or so ago. I I forget exactly when, but there was a lot early on that I just skipped. I was kind of like, I don't really see anything special there. I kind of moved on. As I restarted this for this podcast and got deeper, I went back and so many things jumped out at me. It's like, how did I miss that? And I, as I was getting deeper and deeper, there were so many cool things, at least for me. Uh, I hope they're cool for you too. But it, it just excites me and it really just energizes me to see how many just intricate, neat little things are hidden. Just these, these special gems are hidden in Genesis here. Absolutely. This excites me too. You frequently blow my mind or paint a new picture that I've not seen before. So I'm at least excited to hear more today. All right. So let's do it. And and as always, again, these are things that interest me. Uh, I'm one person. Uh, Please feel free to comment if I miss something that that stood out to you that is amazing about this. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. So anyway, uh, my next verse or set of verses is Genesis 1, 9 through 10. And before I do that, I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, 1 really quick. One of the things it says there is Elohim created the heaven and earth. It's the first time earth is mentioned and earth was not capitalized. 
And I checked this out, and right here, Genesis 1, 9 through 10 says, And Elohim said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And Elohim called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And Elohim saw that it was good. And once again, I've said it before, but I use the Hebraic roots version. If I don't say anything, that's the version I'm using. But right here, earth is capitalized. So I thought, why? And I checked it out in Strong's Concordance. Earth is only capitalized in two places in the entire Bible, once here and once in Revelation. And so my first thought is, wow, why? What what does that signify? What's going on? And as I looked into it, it appears that it's only because he's using it as a name. And in this case, he called the dry land earth. So it's capitalized because it's being used as a proper name because he's, he's naming it. So I didn't really get much out of it in that sense. But the reason I point it out here is just to kind of point out to you where my mind goes. I try to see these little things. What does that mean? Why did he say it like that? What's going on here? So that's really the only reason I bring that up. It's still interesting that it's in the bookends of the Bible. I made it a connection last time that Genesis is our origin, it's our past, Revelation is our eternity, our future. Yes. It's just kind of interesting that, you know, it is in the bookends. Maybe there is no great meaning to it, still kind of unique. And I do, uh, on that note, uh, the more I do this, the more I realize there's Revelation in Genesis, and there's Genesis in Revelation. Again, God is perfect. He exists outside of time. Everything he does is perfect. His plan for the end was in the beginning, as we discussed before, and it's all connected. There are are pieces, as Brad gets into Revelation, there are pieces that I've read that I go, that sounds like the creation of the universe. That sounds like he's talking about Adam and Eve, not about Jesus or the dragon or what have you. It, It is amazing how connected these are. But anyway, let me go on here. So a couple of the words that jumped out at me that I checked out. I'm going to start with the word seas. The gathering together of the waters called he seas. So what does seas mean? He's gathering these waters together. Uh, Well, Strong's Concordance, it is number 3220. And the word is yom. And... I found this fascinating. The, the primary meaning of this word that is defined here as seas is the verb to roar. And I thought that was fascinating that this is the word used for seas. It goes on to say it also means a sea or large body of water, and it kind of represents the breaking in noisy surf. Why they get the word roar. So the word picture here, yod, mem, That's it, Yod Mem. One of the possible interpretations for this is is, uh, pretty cool as far as the creation goes, as far as the creation story goes. One of the word pictures is, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. I mean, that's in the word picture, and that's what we're talking about here. It says, and gathering together of the waters called he sees. And the word picture is let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. It's an arm working on the water. So I thought that was a pretty cool picture. And now, there's something else I want to say about the waters here, but I'm going to skip on. I'm going to come back to that. Right now, I want to go to earth. 
the next word that I checked out. Now, earth can mean nations. Satan roars like a lion seeking who he may devour. Now, we've covered the word earth in previous ones. So that's why I'm not going into the word picture and all of that. But I want to bring this up. Earth can mean nations. And we just heard that seas, the definition is to roar. And we know Satan roars like a lion seeking whom he may devour, the Bible says. So I'm looking at this and saying, is this a picture of what's going on here? 1 Peter 5.8 says, be vigilant and mindful because your enemy Ha-Satan, and that's Hebrew for the Satan. And as we mentioned before, Satan is a title, just means deceiver. So be vigilant and mindful because your enemy, Ha-Satan, as a lion, roars and walks about and seeks whom he may swallow. So is there a possible word picture going on here that the roar being referred to is Satan? works chaos that's that's just interesting to me is right here it's talking about the gathering of the together of the waters called he sees uh and he called the dry land earth is their nation so to speak that the 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 roar is going on around it trying to keep people from entering the nation joining into chaos i don't know it's just fascinating to me that the seas means roar earth means nations and we have this picture here of satan seek uh roaring like a lion now there's something else i want to point out too in first peter 5 8 he says satan as a lion he doesn't say satan is a lion he says as a lion so in other words satan is a deceiver we've already said this the very word satan means deceiver he prowls as a lion. He wants you to think he's a lion, but he's not. He roars and walks about seeking whom he may swallow. The King James Version says may devour. In other words, he's seeking who he is allowed to devour. Satan's only power over you is deception. Yeah, think about that for a moment. Satan can only devour you if you allow him. Exactly. That's interesting. Um, real quick, I think um, I remember reading something that uh, Hebrew nation, um, they were in the early days very afraid of the water. Um, to them, the water actually was kind of a bad omen. It's kind of interesting that uh, we've got the deceiver right, roaring in the waters, and they kind of had a fear of the water too. So... There might be something to that. Well, another thing I've heard it said is that water prophetically can represent humanity. Uh, if you think about it, humanity is in all the different kinds of people together, you know, like water, just mixed up all together, uh, the, the variety of humanity. And that made me think, if so, is that what this is a picture of? The gathering together of humanity into one spot to become a nation? Is this a prophetic foreshadowing of God calling all people to his kingdom and Satan trying to prevent it? Uh, is there, there is a prophetic word picture here to unify into a single body of water. The arm gathers all water together. There's, there's a lot that can be pulled from this. And I even see God calling the people 
all over the world of the nation of Israel. When Israel became a nation, uh, that is a prophetic foreshadowing. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many stories about how he just, people just felt drawn uh, to come to Israel, the homeland, and live there for whatever reason. And he's calling it, is this him gathering together a nation uh, rising up in the middle of the water, in the middle of the seas? Sorry, I don't remember the names or anything like that, but I remember reading a story about a gentleman who was very wealthy and prosperous in America, and he just had this calling to go to Israel. And he went to Israel, and over there, he's not wealthy, he's not, you know, he basically is living in a shack on the outside of Israel, but something about it said, no, this is home. Yeah. He gave up everything, everything he had, brought his family, and they live there now. Yeah, and there's lots of stories like that, people just wanting to go back, Jews from all over the world just wanting to go back to Israel is that in and of itself a prophetic foreshadowing of God calling us all to his kingdom out of wherever we are in the world? So that's, that's something. I'm going to move on, though, to Genesis 1, 11 through 13. And Elohim said, Let the earth put forth grass, herb-yielding seed, and fruit tree bearing fruit after its kind, wherein is the seed thereof upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, herb yielding seed after its kind, and tree bearing fruit, wherein is the seed thereof, after its kind. And Elohim saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning a third day. So my first reaction to this, after reading it, the first thing that jumped out at me was after its kind. That just grabbed me for whatever reason. I, I don't know what it was. I, I think it was because I felt like I'd heard it before, uh, this means something. It, this isn't the only place where this is found. And I, I kind of connected with that. And as I was checking it out, I found an article at ChristianityMalaysia.com uh, that said in Genesis chapter 1, there is a law of God that is stated at least 10 times that everything God has created will produce after its own kind. And uh, the article went on to highlight the personal spiritual connection we can take from this. There was a lot in the article. It was really, it was really well done. And if you want to go to ChristianMalaysia.com, I'm sure you can find it there. But again, I, my emphasis has been finding personal spiritual uh, connections to the physical examples and representations of this. So Proverbs 23.7, the first part says, For as one that has reckoned within himself so is he. The New King James Version translates it as, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And ChristianityMalaysia.com goes on to say about this, in connecting it with Genesis chapter 1, is what I think is what I believe, and it will ultimately produce after its own kind. And that really struck me personally, because I've seen it in so many places. Uh, even this week, that has come up to me so many times. The power of life and death truly is in the tongue. You release blessings and cursings when you speak. And what you speak comes from what is in your heart. And what is in, so what is in your heart is producing 
after its own kind. There is a spiritual reality to the physical example here. Everything produces after its own kind. If what's in your heart is revenge, then you will sow revenge, you will reap revenge. If what's in your heart is hatred, you will sow hatred, you will reap hatred. If what's in your heart is love, you will sow love, you will reap love. And this hit me personally because I was cursing casually. And when I say cursing casually, I don't mean swearing the way we think of it as saying curse words. I mean, I was cursing uh, the way friends do. Uh, You know, hey, you loser, get over here, you big lug. You know, the way you think of as friendly, having fun, you know, wrapping someone's uh, head up in your arm and giving them a noogie and, and saying, hey, you moron, you, you know, you big jerk and laughing about it. And I suddenly started to realize I was casually saying, releasing negative things about people all this time. And it, it just struck me. And I made a conscious decision to stop speaking condemnation years ago when I had this revelation. But reading this again just made it sink in uh, all the more. In fact, uh, one of the things that I want to share with you, I, I homeschooled my son. And one of the things I taught him was that, you know, he'd get things wrong. We'd be studying and he would, he would say something, you know, uh, when he was young and he was, all right, what is four times six? And he'd say 28. No, that's, that, that's wrong. Uh, and he'd go, oh, I'm an idiot. And I had to stop him and say, no, don't say that. Don't ever say that. You are not an idiot. You are intelligent. You are wise. Um, you did one idiotic thing, but that thing, once recognized that it was wrong, you learn from it, you grow, and you move on. You are not an idiot. Do not release that into your life. How many times, I, I'm, I know Brad, you know, you must have examples or you see it all the time. How many times do we just hear people, you know, just say things casually like, oh, stupid dog or, oh, those, you know, dumb kids of mine, or that kind of thing. How many people get into their little groups and gossip about somebody, and oh, they yeah. think it's harmless, mm-hmm. but they're actually putting curses out there, and I'm, and I'm guilty of this, too. I mean, you're making me realize some of the things that I still need to grow, and I still need to work on as well. So, yes, this is very eye-opening. Um, I'm also probably my own worst critic I'm frequently doing the same things, you know. Oh, I'm not good enough to do this, or um, I'm dumb for not seeing that, or right. You know, so we have to, yeah, we have to work on that. And you know, you're right. Even as I'm saying this now, I was teaching my son to do this, and he was turning around and telling me the same things. And, and it was so easy to do it. I I was doing the same thing to myself, and my yeah. son would turn around and go, "Dad, you're doing it." Oh, you're right, because it's habit for mm-hmm. all of us. Yeah, and that's why we got to think about what we're, what we're actually, what's actually in our heart. I mean, do I really think in my heart that I'm a, you know, idiot or anything like that? Probably not. So I need to make sure I'm not putting those words out there and cursing myself and others. All right, so another brief thing that I see in this section is there are, there's a list of three things here grass, seed, and fruit. And we talked about before, three is a 
considered a perfect number of completion. So there's something complete here. What, what it's telling me is God perfected this. God, as God planted this, it's perfect. Everything is complete. He, he didn't just partially create the earth. He didn't just, he didn't just partially put some plants on or a few here, or it, it was not incomplete. This tells me that the, uh, of the, the plant life, of the tree life, all that kind of thing, the, the botanical life on the earth, there's a completeness to it that God perfected when he created that on the third day. But I'm going to move on now, unless you have something else to add, Brad? No. No, okay. it's just interesting. I, I wrote a note down, uh, three. I'm trying to keep track of when those are mentioned. Right. I want to look into them a little more. So Genesis 1, 14 through 19. Okay, now... Before, in this podcast, those were some kind of neat things. Jumped out at me. Those were kind of cool. Now, uh, this really, a lot of this blew my mind. Uh, So I hope it does that for you too. And Elohim said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And Elohim made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And Elohim set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And Elohim saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to jump into is the word lights. So we obviously have a lot of light going on here. So lights, Strong's Concordance number 3974 is the word ma'or. Uh, it can also mean me'ora. And it's spelled a few different ways, but those are the two pronunciations, ma'or or me'ora. And it means a luminous body. Figuratively, it can mean brightness. Or it can also mean cheerfulness. Now, this is different from Strong's Concordance 216 or, which is used earlier. So now, the fact is, this says that the lights rule. We have the greater light that rules the day, the lesser that rules the night. So, this made me think, these are luminous bodies, figuratively brightness, cheerfulness. It's, it's a glowing body that everyone can see. Are we the moon? reflecting the sun's glory for those in the night to see. So it made me think, Jesus, represented by the sun, he's, he's, where light, he's the source of light. The moon does not have its own light. Did, were the sun not to exist, the moon would be pitch black. The moon has no light of its own. The moon is only light because it's reflecting the sun. So Jesus lives in the light. The day belongs to him. We are living in night. We're living in this sinful world. Does the moon mean us? Are we the ones? Because he says he made two great lights, the great light to rule the day, but the lesser light to rule the night. Are we not rulers? Are we not heirs of salvation? Are we not made to be kings? But what are we ruling? We're ruling the darkness while we live in this sinful world. Are we not meant to reflect the glory 
of the one who is light in this darkened world? Well, there's also scripture that says the light will reveal all the things hidden in the darkness, all of the sins, all of the private secret sins. So that's interesting to me too. We, we do not have any light, but light will be shined upon us, revealing the things that we do in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And Adam was given dominion over the world. Uh, so is that is that a prophetic foreshadowing? Again, physical example of a spiritual truth. Are we the moon? Is he the sun in this picture? That's very interesting. And previously you mentioned that day also could be interpreted as father and son. Yes. You know, so I, I see some connections here. It's very mm-hmm. fascinating. Now, the firmament. Uh, let's go back. We've already discussed this word, but let's remember it's the visible arch of the sky. The firmament is everything up there that we can see because he places the lights in the firmament of heaven. And he says, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, first off, let's begin with days and years. What does that mean? Now, days and years uh, in the Hebrew mindset, the day begins and ends at sunset. Uh, For those of you who don't know, sun goes down, it begins a new day. And that day continues until the sun goes down again, which starts a brand new day. So the sun, it says uh, the lights in the sky were made for through these things. So the sun indicates when a new day begins. We can't know when a new day uh, starts unless we're looking at the sun. It's designed for that. Now, a new month, I have to mention month here because it says for days and for years, but you can't understand years without understanding a month. A new month begins with the sliver of the new moon. Uh, Now, while a year is 12 months later, so 12 moons, 12 slivers of the new moon later, if the barley harvest in Jerusalem is ripe and it's 13 months long, if an additional, it's an additional month added on if the barley harvest is not ripe. So the reason I bring this up is because, again, every month you have to watch the moon. The signs in the heaven, the, the, the luminous bodies in the firmament are given for signs for days and for years. So we have to actually watch the sky. We have to see the lights in the heavens in order to tell the, whether it's a new day, whether it's a new month, and count the number of months to determine when it's a new year. Now, signs. I want to talk about this because every major star in the sky, and I, I believe Brad knows this, so I'm not blowing his mind on this, this one. We've discussed this. He knows all about this. But the constellations and the stars all have the same meaning in every major language. Now think about that. How is that possible? How is that possible if Genesis is not correct? If God did not name the stars and put them in all of our hearts, how is it possible that 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 many stars have identical meanings in that many languages? What are the odds that even a single star has the absolute identical meaning in, coincidentally, in every language. What are the odds? Un- 
uncountable. It's yeah. impossible to figure. I I think this gives testament to the whole Tower of Babel situation too. Absolutely it does. So you have the world at one point all speaking the same language. Um, they are passing down the same information. Then they're taken and spread all across the world. They're all given different languages, but they still remember their history. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, we can get, we can go deep into that and maybe we should for another topic, but at Tower, another time. Yeah. Yeah. Tower of Babel and the flood. I think there's more evidence of both of those things than there is for a right old earth, a billion year old earth. And that's this is one of those things that I talk about. And um, I, I've said before, I have a scientific mindset. I don't, I, I'm opposed to religion as defined by man trying to make God into his own image. But I believe there, there's, a, there's a wonderful book out there I encourage everyone to read if you can. It's, it's called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Great it, book. It breaks it down scientifically. It says if you honestly look at the evidence, you realize that atheism is a greater religion than Christianity. Uh, the science actually backs up Christianity. It's things like this that scientists refuse to acknowledge. They just blow it off and say, whatever, yeah, let's move on. Because they have no answer. They have no real answer. Everything feels bogus and fixed, and, and like they're just trying to blow it off. Oh, it was travelers you know connecting back in the ancient time to to everywhere on the globe at the same time no i don't think so the author of the book um believe his name is frank turek he is a great debater too um search him up on youtube um i'm trying to remember i think his website is called cross-examined i believe um watch some of his debates I mean, he he goes up against atheists who are super intelligent and they're trying to bring all their evidence and, uh, you know, he does what he should do. He is an apologetic. He gives them the evidence the way it should be seen. But right here, what we're seeing in Genesis 1, 14 through 19 is that the names of the stars and their placement are God's clock pointing out his plan and his timeline. We don't have the space to get into this right here. Like I said, maybe it's another uh, podcast at some point. But his plan of salvation is in the name of his stars. Each star has a name and a meaning and an order to it that tells his story in the sky. The constellations do the same. And there's also a timeline. We can go through and see when this star Uh, connects with this planet this is going to happen we can look through history and say God had a clock up in the sky that the wise men understood and knew when we saw this in the heavens that means XYZ was going to happen not going to get into all of that right now but we see that the stars are for signs I remember how appreciative and excited I was when I first learned this because even before I was relationship chasing, before I was in study, I've always been an avid sky watcher. Used to take telescopes out on dark nights and and, and try to learn a little bit about the universe. And this, it just clicked when mm-hmm. I discovered this. It was a very mind-blowing experience. I hope it is for you too. Right. 
Now, another thing I wanted to point out here that grabbed me is we just said lights mean uh, a luminous body. Uh, figuratively, they stand for brightness. And we're called to be his lights on the earth. That's mentioned many times. So, again, I'm going to jump to Revelation where Brad is. And in Revelation chapter 1, it says, we're talking about stars here. We're talking about God putting lights in the firmaments. And there's a very clear image where Jesus is holding seven stars in his right hand. And it explains right there, and he defines it. He says the seven stars are the seven assemblies. The, the King James Version says churches. But there's, now there's only seven mentioned here for specific reasons. I want to connect that. The lights, God placed the lights in the sky. And he says specifically here, these stars, these lights are the seven churches, the seven assemblies. Is this, again, a prophetic picture, a practical example we can see in the sky, but is this a prophetic picture of the stars being the things he's doing, the way he's moving on the earth through all of us? So anyway, I'll keep going on with that. Just something to think about. We are his lights. We're supposed to be his lights on the earth. I'm going to get into seasons. And this, again, this is an amazing thing to me, which we will get into in greater detail, hopefully in another one, uh, in another podcast. But seasons, Strong's Concordance number 4150 has a few different spellings. It can be, mo, it can be pronounced moed. It can also be pronounced moada. The plural is moadim. Now this means an appointment, a fixed time or season, a festival. Conventionally, it's also a year. It's an assembly that is convened for a specific purpose. It's a signal. It's a set time or a solemn feast. Now the word picture here, because there's different spellings, moed, moada, moadim, and actually moed is spelled a couple different ways too. It's pronounced the same way, but there's two different spellings to get moed. So I checked out all the possible spellings and, and interpretations. So a possible interpretation for moed is uh, water. And again, we've said uh, this is a prophetic picture, uh, possibly. Some people have said this, this stands for all people. So we can see moed is all people see or experience the path. Now moed, different spelling, is all people see or experience the path of the nail. And moada is behold, all people are seeing or experiencing the path of the nail. So what we see here is seasons. Now, I've heard it uh, talked about that these represent the feasts of the Lord. And this is a whole other Bible study, which we'll try to get into it sometime. It's, it's an amazing picture. The feasts of the Lord are things we've, we've dropped. Uh, and we do not know about them. I thank God that the knowledge about these is growing from what I'm seeing uh, throughout Christianity. But... This is the word where we get feasts. In Leviticus 23, 1 and 2, And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe, or Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The appointed seasons of Yahweh, 
which you shall proclaim to be set apart convocations, even these are my appointed seasons. This word seasons that he's using here is the same word in Genesis, moadim. Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now this word seasons, his feasts, are all triggered by the light. And we have to watch the sky to know when they're going to happen. It's, it's an amazing thing. I, it is so complex and so cool. I wish I could get into it right here. I simply don't have the time. But I want to point out this word seasons and moadim. Seasons, the same word, moadim. Convocations, it says here in Leviticus. Convocations comes from the Hebrew mikra which means called out like a public meeting or a rehearsal or a reading. It's literally telling you right here that the Old Testament pictures are rehearsals of things to come. To have a deeper understanding of the Gospels, you really do need to have some understanding of the feasts. Jesus, what they're doing in the Old Testament is a rehearsal of what Jesus will fulfill. Yes. And even to understand Revelation, you also need to understand the feast to understand some of the pictures of what has to be, what has to happen, what has to be fulfilled before the Messiah can even come back. Uh, feasts, oh, yes. super important. Um, go ahead and I would say go ahead and if you've never looked into it, maybe start. Um, but I think you're right, Scott. That might that might need to be one of our first uh, topics that we get to here soon. Right. It it it's truly amazing. So, because like we've said, the Old Testament, it's a physical example of spiritual truths in written form. In fact, the Word of God itself. I mean, think about it. You guys out there listening, you've got a Bible in your hand or a Bible on your desk as you do this, or or a Bible somewhere. The Word of God is not that Bible. The Word of God, as the Bible itself says, is Jesus. The Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was made flesh. The Word is Jesus. It's not that book in front of you. That book is a physical example that's easy for us to understand. We can open up the book, we can read it, we can understand it, but the word that we need to be connected to is the person of Jesus himself. Hallelujah. Truth. So the Old Testament is a physical example of spiritual truths in written format, but the feasts of the Lord were physical examples of spiritual truths in active participation mode. We were living the examples when we celebrated the feasts. The feasts themselves, again, they make for a fascinating study and they truly reveal a lot of what we've lost in our chase for who God is. And Brad, as Brad said, we're going to have to get into that at some point because, well, for one thing, they're just so cool. <laughs> it's so amazing. But as this is a story, a study of Genesis, I'm not going to get into them any further here. Uh, so in a general Bible study, we'll, we'll jump into that together at some point. So Brad, uh, I have been keeping track. What's my time looking like? 
Right now we are at the 43 minute mark, probably 41 when I get rid of some of these gaps. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Brad's our editor, so he knows about that more than I do. So I'm looking ahead at what I've got here, and I wanted to get into so much more. We're, I, I think this is probably a good time to stop it because now we're going to get into the creation of the animal life and, and, and all of that and what it speaks to. And it just, now I'm debating. You know what? No, I'm going to do it right here. I'm going to go on. I'm going to go on. I've got a few minutes. I've got about 20 minutes or so. Genesis 1, 20 through 23. And Elohim said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let fowl fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And Elohim created the great sea creatures and every living creature that creeps with which the water swarmed after its kind and every winged fowl after its kind. And Elohim saw that it was good. And Elohim blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. So swarm. Now the King, King James Version says, bring forth abundantly. And I looked this up, and again, this is one of the other the problems I have with Strong's Concordance. Uh, this is a minor problem. It's just a minor irritation of any, uh, really. But the, the word that it's connecting here is abundantly. Uh, so I was looking for bring. That's nothing according to it. Again, this is one of those situations where the Hebrew word doesn't connect directly to an English word in the King James Version. It connects to a phrase, bring forth abundantly. It's the word sharats, and it means to wriggle by implication, swarm or abound, which is why the Hebraic Version used swarm. It means to breed abundantly, which is fast, I found fascinating. It means to creep or to move. Uh, uh, so there's, there's not a one-to-one -one word match with the King James Version, so you got to be careful with that. Bring forth abundantly is, uh, in its entirety, actually what is meant here from the single Hebrew word. But the word picture, shin, resh, sade, a possible interpretation from this is just eat, read, rest. And I thought that was fascinating, that here he's bringing out this, you know, this, uh, this swarms, and what I get from the word picture is eat, read, rest. I'm just going to move on for now. Might come back to that later. But right now, uh, where it says giant sea creatures, uh, the King James Version says whales. Strong's Concordance, it's number 8577, and it can either be uh, pronounced tanin, ending in an N, like Nancy, tanin, or tanim, ending in an M, like in Mary. Tanin or tanim. And it comes from Strong's Concordance 8565, tan. So literally, this is the plural of tan, which means to elongate a monster, a sea serpent, or other huge marine animal, a jackal, or other hideous land animal. It can mean a dragon. It can also mean a whale. So I think when the King James interpreters interpreted this, they chose whale because we knew what a whale was. It's a large sea mammal. But we have to understand, this can mean sea serpent. This could mean Leviathan. This could mean a, a something else that we're not aware of here. Now, I'm going to move on really quick. Uh, oh, the word picture. Tav, Nun, 
Yod, Mem. Possible interpretation here is signs of life working in the water. So I thought of that as God placing his signature in the water. Signs of life working in the water. Life being God. God is life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So these are signs, the signature of God in the water. Now let's move to Fowl. Uh, Strong's Concordance number 5775. And it's very simple. It's oaf, and the meaning is very clear, a bird or fowl. But the word picture here, I thought was pretty cool. Ayin, yod, fe, and one of the possible interpretations is, see the work of your word? (laughs) That's cool. And so what I got out of this is a twin picture of the water creatures and the... The, the air, the, the creatures of the air, and the number two uh, is, can mean unity or division. It can also mean witness. And the Bible says two witnesses uh, speak to the truth of a thing. And we have two here uh, in the word picture, meaning the signature of God in the water and see the work of your word in the air. Just testifying of who God is in his creation. Another way to kind of look at it is we can't be like the birds. We can't just leave the ground and fly up there. We also can't survive very long in the sea. So it's just kind of interesting that it's giving testimony that there is life other than we can experience it in in the two different areas. Yeah. Now, I looked at the word open. Uh, Strong's Concordance number 6440. Uh, Panim or paneh. Now, I found this interesting because the word they chose here for open, and when I say open in the verse, uh, let's go back. I'm going to find this spot. I'm rereading the verse again. Elohim said, let the warm waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let fowl fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. One of the reasons I was looking at this word open was because I was wondering, was it inferred that there's a closed part of the firmament? So I was looking up this word because I was interested to see if it would give me any clues about this. But I found it fascinating, uh, just as I was looking at this, the word open here is the Hebrew word for the face. And I thought that was, that was interesting. It, so it's literally saying, let the fowl fly above the earth in the face of the firmament of heaven. The face, it's the part that turns. It's used in a great variety of applications literally and figuratively it's also this word is also used for anger to inquire fear of honorable mouth and to open out of which is where they get open here the word picture pay noon and hey a possible interpretation is behold the word's life or behold the life in the word So again, we have a picture here. Open can mean mouth, speaking the word of God. The birds, which which, uh, the possible word picture is see the work of your word, is again, we're speaking to look, behold, the word is life. Look at the life in the word. And I thought the, the fascinating combination of those. Yeah, it's just really cool. There's a very unique parallel there. So anyway, 
I'm going to go back to just the fact that it's like the sky itself. Not just the signs in the sky, not just the lights in the sky, but the sky itself is talking to us. It's like the birds are flying in the face of the firmament, through the mouth of the firmament, the open mouth. The sky is talking to us. The sky itself, with the birds, everything about the sky is telling us. It's going back to signs in the firmament. It's talking to us of God's glory just by looking up at the sky. This may not be any sort of connection, but I find it interesting that it's talking about the face. The sky has a face, and I'm like, well, then if it's angry, is that when there's a thunderstorm? <laughs> you know, I when like it that. when it's happy, is that sunshine, blue skies, white fluffy clouds? <laughs> so then I checked up the word fruitful, which is Strong's Concordance 6509, and that's the word para, and it means to bear fruit, literally or figuratively, to cause to be or to cause to make something fruitful, to cause to make something grow or increase. Uh, so it's a pretty clear interpretation of the word. But the word picture here, this is fascinating. Pay, resh, hey. The possible interpretation of this is the word Yeshua. Now, I don't mean that as in, I mean Yeshua. The, okay, let me put it this way. The possible interpretation of this word picture is, quote, the word Yeshua, unquote. The whole, that whole phrase, that whole sentence. And I love this. Hey means lo, behold, the. Pay means mouth, word, or speak. And resh is read, or person, or first, which we've discussed before. It's the first person. It could refer to Adam. It could refer to Jesus as being the first begotten son of God. So the word fruitful, be fruitful and multiply. The word fruitful itself, a possible interpretation of this word picture is, quote, the word Yeshua. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says, For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not there except it water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, and give seeds to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, except it accomplish that which I please and make the thing whereto I sent it to prosper. All of that picture right there is what we just talked about. His word, the rain, the, rain, the water of his word goes forth out of my mouth, a picture of the sky. It shall not return unto me void. The word Yeshua is the word picture for fruitful. We're talking about fruitful here. This, this whole word picture is just beautiful to me. And it brings so much more life to these verses. You're blowing my mind, Scott. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap this up with Genesis 1, 24 through 25. We'll talk about these here and then we'll end this. And Elohim said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after its kind, cattle and creeping things, and the beast of the earth after its kind. And it was so. 
And Elohim made the beast of the earth after its kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after its kind. And Elohim saw that it was good. Now, for one thing, cattle, beast, creeping things. We have completeness. So, again, I see what this is saying is God is putting the entirety of animal life out there. It's complete. He put it, he put it all out there. There's nothing that gets created later. There's nothing uh, incomplete about what he did. But I want to go to beast first because this one just fascinated me. Beast, Strong's Concordance number 2416, Kai. And the first interpretation of this word, the first definition is alive. I love that. Beast equals alive. Now it also means It can also mean fresh plant. It can also mean fresh water. It can also mean fresh year. A new year has started. It can also mean congregation or multitude. But this word alive in particular jumped out at me right now. Beast means alive. Genesis 45, 26 says, and it's talking about Joseph. Uh, The the brothers of Joseph find out Joseph is not, uh, he's in Egypt. They told his father that he was dead. They knew they'd sold him into slavery, but they didn't know where he was now. They come back finding out he's the ruler of Egypt and they're telling his father. And they told him saying, Yosef is yet alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart fainted for he believed them not. This word alive is the same Hebrew word used here in Genesis 1.24 for beast. That is fascinated me. There's a word picture here, chet and yod. Now, I struggled with this one. Uh, This one baffled me, really, to come up with something. How could I connect it with alive? What what is being told here? What, What picture am I seeing? And something hit me as I was going over this, and I was meditating on it and, and just ruminating on it, that a possible interpretation here Because chet means tent wall, fence, or separation. Yod means arm and hand, work, or deed. A possible interpretation here is separated from your work. And I thought of that as our work, when our work here on earth is done, and we're separated from that work, what does that mean? That means we go on to our eternal rest, our eternal life. John 12, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you that a grain of wheat, except it fall and die in the earth, abides alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Romans 8, 10 says, But if Messiah is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And 1 Corinthians 15, 36 says, Fool? The seed that you sow, unless it dies, does not live. And I realize that in this word alive, for beast, let the earth bring forth the living creature after its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after its kind. This word, he's bringing forth life, is another thing that this is saying. To the unbeliever, death follows life. When life is over, that's when death wins. But to the believer, life follows death. 
We need to die in order to live. We need to die to ourselves on this planet in order to truly have the life of Jesus flowing through us. And we need to die in this body in order to go on to eternal life. So we need to have hope in our death. Absolutely. And that's something we've talked about before in one of our conversations about this whole COVID scenario and and not just COVID, but anything. The Christian, the believer, we should have a completely different worldview than the rest of the people on this planet. We should be understanding that death has no sting, that that death to us is nothing more than a one-way ticket home to our eternal rest, our eternal life from and being separated from our work. We no longer have to work. It's just life for here on through eternity. So one more thing I want to speak about in this in these chapters is the word cattle. And this is Strong's Concordance number 929, Behema. Now it's from an unused root that they that the the researchers figure probably meant to be mute. So properly, what this word stands for is a dumb beast, especially referring to a large quadruped or animal, beast, cattle. So the word picture here is bait, hay, mem, hay. So this is another one that I struggled with for a bit. And one of the possible interpretations I came up with was, behold the house, behold the chaos. Because I started to think, does this define us? And when I say that, it's because we are often referred to as sheep. Jesus is our shepherd. We are the sheep. Well, sheep is one of the animals listed here. When we think of the word cattle, we think of cows, at least in the United States of America. We think cattle are steer, cows, that's it. But cattle really refers to any any dumb animal. <laughs> and that's really, I, I heard a joke one time from a comedian long ago that was talking about, we're called sheep in the Bible. You know why? Because sheep are dumb. <laughs> and, and it really is in, in this word, it's any dumb animal referring to any large quadruped. It's, it's pigs, it's camels, it's sheep, it's elephants, it's rhinos. It's, it's cat. These are all cattle. And I was thinking, Behold the house, behold the chaos. When he created cattle, is this a prophetic picture of us being man, being in the instigator of chaos, the, the, the sinner, the one who brought sin into the world, into our house, Adam brought chaos. And I lied before, I missed one. There is one more thing I looked up. I looked up beast, I looked up cattle. So what was the third one? The things that creep us. So again, I looked up thing, because that seemed to be the noun, and that led nowhere. So I looked up creepeth. Now this is Strong's Concordance 7431. I'm going to give two words here. 7431 is remis. 7430 is ramas. The reason I mention them both, they're both spelled the same. But I'm skipping kind of ahead here, because... Genesis 1.25, it's remis. Genesis 1.26, that we haven't got to yet, creepeth, is ramas. Both are spelled the same, but ramas is the verb, meaning to glide swiftly. In other words, to crawl or move with short steps, to creep, to move. Remis is the noun, meaning a reptile 
or other rapidly moving animal that creeps. So the word picture here in both of them, because they're spelled the same, is resh, meim, and sheen. So one of the possible interpretations here, and there's many that I found fascinating. So I'm going to give you several. Read about how chaos destroys. Is that a picture of the Torah? Or also read about how chaos is destroyed. It can also mean Adam or Jesus, it can refer to either one, is who chaos wants to destroy. And it can also mean through Jesus, chaos is destroyed. Hallelujah. The serpent plunged man into chaos. The serpent on the tree trying to get Adam and Eve to eat that fruit. The serpent, the one who creepeth, is plunged man into chaos. Satan is often portrayed as a serpent in the scripture, and he's the one that tried to win his ultimate victory by nailing Jesus to the cross. But that, that act is how Jesus conquered sin, hell, and the grave. So we've got just an amazing word picture here when referring to uh, remes or reptile. So I'm going to end there. I probably went a little long on this one, but I had, I just, I just had to include all of that. <laughs> you got to do what the Spirit wants you to do. All right. So next time we'll move on into Genesis 1, 26 and beyond. But uh, right now, Brad, do you have any final thoughts about any of this? I'm mind blown here because I'm realizing something. I'm having this, this thought. I have been limiting God, and God, I, I am sorry. I keep referring to Genesis as our origin, but what I wasn't seeing is it's the origin of everything. I limited it. These word pictures are giving testimony to the fact that he created everything and he had meaning for everything that he did. And Scott, I just, I thank you for these word pictures. They're giving me things to think about. And I, I hope the listeners too. I hope they are also seeing these and understanding that there's so much more going on than our little minds are able to comprehend. This has been a good one, Scott. I, I really appreciate it. All right. So with that being said, we will wrap this up. Once again, this has been Scott. And this has been Brad. And this has been... Not about us.